What's up, guys? You're listening to The Quest, a podcast that inspires founders and creators to seek eternal growth. I'm Justin Kahn, co-founder of Twitch and partner at Goat Capital. Every week, I sit down with icons and trailblazers from tech, Hollywood, sports, music, and more to uncover their human stories and bring you lessons in finding meaning and happiness beyond success. It's often easy to talk about winning, but I'm here to share the difficult stories that are often left out of the spotlight. I ask the questions nobody else asks, and you'll get the answers you won't hear anywhere else. I get a ton of Twitter DMs every day asking me something along the lines of, Hey, Justin, I want to be a great founder, and I have this amazing idea in my head, but I don't really know how to start building it. What do I do? I always tell young founders to just get started and ship something. Luckily, the days of needing to hire a designer or relying on VC funding just to get started are over with apps like Universe. Universe is not just any website builder. It's literally one of the easiest tools out there to customize your unique site that fits your personality. With this app, you don't need to spend hours sitting at a desk building your site. With their grid editor that easily lets you snap blocks into place, you can design and customize your site wherever you are and however you want, all from the palm of your hand. If you're feeling overwhelmed and don't know how to get started on your company, check out Universe and get started building today. We'll drop the link in the show notes. All right, what's up, guys? Today, we're pulling one from the archives. This was actually the first episode of the Quest podcast, and it's amazing to see how far we've come in the last year. My guest today is one of my closest friends and fellow Justin TV and Twitch co-founder, Michael Seibel. Michael's currently the CEO of Y Combinator and an amazing mentor to hundreds, if not thousands, of founders out there. And we talk about his early history growing up, how we both went to Yale, founding Justin TV together, pivoting to Twitch, how he mentored the Airbnb founders early on, and practical tips to applying to YC, and much more. I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. And here is Michael. Okay, I want to start with Michael and I met back in college at Yale. We were both in Brantford College, and that's where we met. That's kind of where our startup journey begins. And but before that, I want to I want to dig into your background. Like, where did you grow up? Who were you before you got to college? Just give us a little bit of the like Michael Seibel origin story. So I was born in Brooklyn in 1982 um my parents were both young my mom was uh, i believe 22 my dad 24 and i grew up um across the street from the Brooklyn museum as an only child for the, my first 10 years um and it was a lot of fun we lived in a two-bedroom apartment we lived in at the time what felt like a huge apartment building um I don't know, probably at least a couple hundred apartments. And everything I learned about was in the context of being in this city. So like you learn how to ride a bike in a city. You learn how to go to school in a city. Um, you know, some of my early memories were I had to walk to my after school program in, um, at the, the YMCA. I had to walk from my school to the after school program. And that was just normal. Like it was normal to be a elementary school kid walking 10 blocks to your after school program. Um, I remember this really vivid memory um, of my public school that my parents had to lie to get me into. We had to pretend that we lived in Park Slope in order for me to get into a good uh, elementary school. And, you know, from the beginning, it was clear that they valued education when we had to do things like that. And I remember having to memorize my friend's address. Oh, so you were pretending to live at your friend's house. Yes. 
Yes. And, and it's just so funny because the, to think that a school would walk around and ask every kid the address just to <laughs> sure. like write it down. But like, you know, what's your address? I had to be prepared. And so my report cards and all of the school communications would go to my friend's house. And every month we'd go and pick up the mail from there. And so, yeah, that was growing up. And, you know, I had relatives. My grandparents um, lived in State College, Pennsylvania, which felt like basically the country. They lived, State College is where Penn State is. And so it's in the middle of the state. And, you know, so we would go there during the summer sometimes. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Around uh, when I was about nine years old, around fourth grade, my parents told me that they wanted to move to the suburbs. They wanted to move to New Jersey. And what became clear was that they were looking at the schools that I would have access to in Brooklyn, and they were uh, not happy. And so we didn't have a lot of money, and we ended up buying a house in this town called East Brunswick, New Jersey, which is about 45 minutes away. At the time, my mom worked as assistant bank, assistant manager at a bank branch, and my dad worked as a uh, storage engineer at uh, Merrill Lynch. And um, we moved into this house that I think on the surface seemed amazing, especially to a kid who grew up in the city. You know, it was... It was, you know, two, two floors. <laughs> um, it, was, it, um, it had three bedrooms. It had a pool. It had a backyard. Uh, it had a deck. Um, but on the other side, this house had been in foreclosure for, I think, two or three years. And so, I've been to that house. It seems pretty nice. Y- well, you saw, like, you saw it like 15 years later. <laughs> it had a lot of renovations. When we got it, it was not in great shape. And I think it had been in foreclosure for three years. So it had been abandoned for three years. So it was very rough shape. And um, my dad actually, strangely, um, in kind of his rebel young years, had been a carpenter for a year or two. And so he was kind of confident that he could fix it up. And so literally, almost the rest of my time living in that house was the slow and steady process of fixing it up. <laughs> uh, that's, you know, I never, I never knew that. My parents did the same thing where they moved into this pretty big fixer-upper in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And then my entire childhood, there were like holes in the walls and like open electrical wiring. <laughs> well, I don't think we had holes in the walls, but we definitely had, I mean, it was, I remember the first night we slept there and I was just like, this is, you were old enough to know, like, this is sketchy. This is not nice. This is not nice. I mean, like, the former owners had, like, dogs, and the dogs were, like, pissed all over the carpet. Like, it was not, like, this isn't one of those houses where, um, you know, it's listed on Zillow, and you paid some real estate developer to, like, fix it up and put nice furniture in and shit. This was, like, you you buy whatever is there you bought like don't ask any questions <laughs> like, we made it cheap like and it was foreclosure you buy it from the bank right like as is and so growing up really changed drastically right my fourth grade was in brooklyn my fifth grade was in new jersey and was with all these kids who basically grew up together that was a hard adjustment you know freedom was different you had to drive everywhere um and so you know the, the the parallel that I keep in my head is that in fourth grade in my school in Brooklyn, you could get a permission slip to leave campus for lunch. This in fourth came, grade. In fourth grade. 
don't it's think that happens thing. anymore. Uh, well, no, in, in Brooklyn it does. In But in East Brunswick, you could leave campus for lunch when you were, when I went to school, when you were in 12th grade. And yeah. now you can't at all. Yeah. <laughs> and so just a different world, a different world. And then um, my sister was born, which I remember very clearly. Um, and suddenly I had this baby in the house and it was, um, I, I had to be a big brother and I was old enough that I could really help. So I had to help, you know, change diapers and watch her and so on and so forth. And then when I was, um, you know, around that time, I started getting a little bit more serious about school, but I don't think I really got serious about school until uh, ninth grade. I just started getting sick and tired of being in classes with people who didn't give a shit. It just started, no. it started just being like frustrating. It's like, it'll go faster for everyone if everyone gives a little bit of a shit. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, this feels endless and horrible. And so I started caring more about school. I started caring a little bit more about um, sports. I joined the football team around that age. And I kind of started getting my act together a little bit. And then right around then, my brother was born. You know, for him, I was really a big brother. I didn't really spend very much time with him before I went out to school. But there was some point around that time when I realized that I could do things at the level of the smartest kids in my school. Like I could be at that level if I wanted to, you know, we had a good school. It was a, it was, it was actually a very, very good high school. And, you know, each grade had about 600, 800 kids. And, you know, the 50 kids at the top of that grade could have gone to any school could have, you know, I, I think to myself that like the top 50 kids in my grade could have all been at Yale and they would have been interchangeable. And I think there was some point in, in high school where I really realized I could hang with all those folks. And so then I decided to start, start working really hard. And they set this really high bar. And I remember I just started doing all this stuff. Like I rode ambulances. I participated in these like government like programs. I volunteered. I like went to these, I just did everything. And um, then it became time to apply to college. And at this point, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I had studied some constitutional law in high school and I was kind of convinced I wanted to be a lawyer and then a judge and the Supreme Court justice. That was the game. And so time to apply to schools and, you know, my mom didn't graduate from college. My dad um, dropped out of college and then later went back and got his degree from NYU in night school. So, you know, I didn't really have like a, it was weird because my grandfather, my dad's dad was a professor at Penn State. So like it was a weird setup, but I had no idea what school I can get into. And so I just applied to every school. Like, I think I applied to like 20 schools. And I remember very distinctly, there was this CD-ROM that was distributed at my school that had every college's application preloaded onto it. And you could basically fill out one application and it would fill out a bunch of other ones. You'd have to go through and kind of fix the mistakes or whatever, but it like made it really easy to apply to schools. And so I just did this. And it was cool because it also allowed you to print your application out. Here's a good thing. You didn't apply online back then. You like right. printed and mailed it, which like people find crazy now. And so I remember I was selecting which schools I was going to apply to. And I, I didn't select Yale. I selected like all these other schools. And my dad was like, why don't you select Yale? I mean, why, why not apply to Yale? And I was like, well, I don't know anything about it, whatever. And he's like, well, the presidents go to Yale. And I was like, well, fucking okay. And then like I click, like you check, you click one checkbox and you've yeah. applied to Yale. <laughs> like it's pretty easy. <laughs> so screw it. So I remember I sent all these applications out and, um, you know, my friends, they went on these like college tours 
where like yeah. we went to see different schools. And I remember saying to my dad, like, hey, like, why can't we go on the college tour? My dad was like, why would I pay for you to visit a school that hasn't accepted you? It seems like a complete waste of money. (laughs) And it was one of those dad arguments where you're like, you try to break it apart and you're like, not only do I agree with this argument, I will do the same for my child. Like I, that day I remember being like, yeah, no, this makes no sense. Like, screw that. Like just apply to more schools. It's way cheaper than going to visit the schools, you know? It's like a volume game. Volume game through and through. And so, um, the first day I got a letter back from one of the schools and it was a letter from UPenn and it said, um, we'd like to invite you to a minority recruitment day at UPenn. And it said 95% of people we invite to this uh, day get into the school. And so <laughs> I hand this to my dad. I'm like, well, this is, this is a lot closer to, <laughs> can we go? So my dad and I go. We're walking around the tour and, you know, there's other students there and yada, yada, yada. And at some point in the middle of the tour, my dad looks at me and he's like, you know, I think you can actually get into this school. Like, I actually think you're, you might be able to get in. And then that started me getting into every single school I applied to. Except all 20. Except for Harvard. Except for Harvard. And I I love Harvard to death. Um, Harvard had a supplemental application because it was a common app school. And it said optional. And so I took the option to not fill out the supplemental application. It's optional that you don't go here. (laughs) We don't have to accept you. (laughs) It's optional. It's optional. Um, As well, my Yale interview was with a lawyer who, because I'd studied all this constitutional law, like we just had this amazing conversation. My Harvard interview was with a guy who had a PhD in statistics. Now, I was taking AP Stats that year and not paying attention at all. AP Stats was the only class in my high school where they gave you a computer. And so literally everyone all day would just play computer games and not look at the teacher. So I was very unprepared for the AP Stats uh, test I basically got at my Harvard interview. So don't get into Harvard, get into every other school. I think that was the first moment that I kind of thought like, okay, like I might, I, I might be going somewhere. I don't know. Like something might be happening. So, um, so then you got in, I mean, they, then I got in. well, 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 then I, then I had to choose what school to go to. And so, um, my two kind of top choices were Columbia and Yale. And, um, when it came to Columbia, I just loved the fact it was in the city. And like, I really romanticized going back to the city. But I remember I asked actually my ex-girlfriend at the time, who who was one of the smartest people I've ever known. I just asked her straight up, like, if you had to choose between Columbia and Yale, which would you choose? And she said, Yale. And I was like, well, it's that, you know, what's funny. This has been a kind of trend in my life. Like if someone who I believe is smarter than me gives me advice, like I tend to try to take it and it tends to work out okay. Nice. (laughs) So I went to Yale. And uh, I remember the first day walking around campus, I thought every old white dude with gray hair was like a Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> I later learned that was like the parents. <laughs> that was yeah. like, uh, you know, um, very quickly the illusion of Yale broke into a million pieces. But for uh, for a moment there, I thought I was you know a scholar and a, and a you know a special person. All right, so uh, you get to Yale. What's it like? What was, what did you think? It was disappointing. 
<laughs> Yale was incredibly disappointing. Um, I love the freedom. I love not being in my parents' house, but you know, literally every single college can provide that. Why was it disappointing? It was um, the students weren't as smart as I thought they were, would be. Um, and smart's not really the right word. They weren't as kind of engaged and maybe intellectual as I thought they would be. Like I almost feel like it was at Yale where I learned that like, just get the grade. Like, you know, like it's not about, like I remember I would go to my poli-sci classes and I would go to sections and no one would talk. Like no one would have any opinions on anything. Yeah, I was that guy. <laughs> and I was just kind of like, oh, this is, you know, I thought this was going to be intellectual nirvana and it turned out to be like, summer camp, expensive, very expensive, fancy summer camp. Right. It was also the first time in my life that it was unstructured. I remember the first day I woke up in the morning and realized that I didn't have to go to class. It turned yeah. out for my college career, that was a bad day. That was a very <laughs> bad day. <laughs> that, was the, that was the inflection point downwards. Uh, yes. My scholastic uh, skills, uh, or, or at least my scholastic participation, um, declined from that point. And so, um, you know, college is also weird. I, I never realized this, but classes, um, have kind of a personality in college and the Oh four class had a personality. I was, I was 2004 originally, and it was a very subdued, very, um, not very crazy, not very loud personality. The 05 class, which Justin was a part of, <laughs> was a very loud class, um, a very uh, in-your-face class. Almost something that, thinking back, I wonder if they almost felt like they made a mistake with our class and then tried to correct it with your guys' class. It's like, oh, these people the, aren't loud enough. Like, the dean of admissions is like, these people aren't going to change the world. We need, no. to, we need to invite some complete troublemaker idiots into this into Yale we need some balance so anyways you know Yale wasn't um it was kind of disappointing I quickly started investing more time in student activities than in school I quickly fell out of love with becoming a lawyer and yeah slowly but surely I stopped participating in school and that culminated in my my first semester of my senior year basically not getting enough good grades. Um, and Yale basically telling me that I had to leave for a year. Um, and it was interesting because Yale doesn't really have the concept of dropping out. It has a concept of inviting you to take a year off. They're inviting you to pause indefinitely. No, no, no. To for, pause oh, for, for a year. year. Yeah. For a year. Because their five-year graduation stats are very important for US News and World Reports. So they're not going to invite you to not graduate. They're just going to invite you to leave for a year. And they're like, get your shit together and come back and graduate. Exactly. That was a really funny moment. Um, in hindsight, at the time, it sucked a lot. I remember telling my roommates this. And I just remember, like, my really good friend, Dave Barthwell, was so pissed. He was like, you should have told us, like, we would have helped you. Like, you were failing in front of our eyes and you didn't tell us. And I was like, shit. Like, oh, that's a real talk right there. Yeah, yeah. And then I remember going home and God, this was brutal. Like the whole Christmas break, I didn't tell my parents. We went to holiday parties. They were planning like the hotel for graduation. 
And then I think I said a line that like probably my parents remember for the rest of their life. It was the, the night before I was getting on the train to go back to New Haven. And I pulled my dad aside and I said, what's the worst thing I could tell you right now? <laughs> like, I kind of feel like it's karma that my son will one day say that to me because like, I don't think any parent like nobody wants to hear bad, that. No. Yeah. There's only bad things that happen after that. There's no. And so, you know, I told my dad I couldn't go back to school. And I love my dad. He said, um, so what you're going to need to do is you need to leave the house. Oh, because I'm going to tell your mom and you need to not be in any physical proximity to your mother when she hears this because she'll probably kill you. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and I was like, you know, you do me a favor here. So like I, I, I walked around the neighborhood for a couple hours and formulated this plan that I would go back to state college and hang out with my grandparents and it would be even fun. I could party with the Penn State. Like, just like really stupid plan. And I come back and talk to my mom and kind of explain this plan. And they and they say, um, no. They say, what you're going to do is you're going to get on the train tomorrow. And you're going to go back to Yale. And you're going to figure your shit out. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, go figure it out. Go. You're going to have to go figure out how to graduate. You're going you're gonna to have to go figure out what you're going to do for the next year. You're going to go figure out everything. Like, we're, we're, you can't live here. You can't live with your grandparents. The only place where you can technically live is there. And figure it out. Good luck. Yeah. And so I went up to New Haven the next day and began the process of figuring it out. And I think that was ridiculously important. It was ridiculously important that I failed pretty spectacularly in a very comfortable place because it got me comfortable with failure over time, it got me comfortable in my ability to overcome failure. And for the first moment, I had to grow up. So um, I got a job. I got a very Yale job. What was the job? I don't remember. I read the newspaper every morning looking for Yale mentions, which I then clipped out and photocopied, which was put into a book of Yale mentions that the president would get every morning with their coffee. So my job was to read the New York Times and photocopy it, which um, it's embarrassing because it's extremely <laughs> Yale job, but it paid. It paid. Um, for a while, I lived in the dorm until one day they figured out I was living in the dorm. And so they kicked me out of the dorm. Uh, and so then I had to get an apartment. And I was, you know, I was a 21-year-old college dropout with a job and an apartment. And uh, figuring my shit out and um, watching all my friends graduate. Was that tough? It was a little tough. It was a little tough. Um, But what was weird is that, like, strangely, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I graduated. And so in, like, in the back of my head, it was relief, maybe, that, like, well, I wasn't at the finish line of college, so I didn't have to figure out what I was going to do next. And so... um, what did I do next? That summer, I um, continued working and I um, lived with my roommates and I applied for jobs. And, uh, you know, this is this was the ultimate irony. I listened to this NPR program on government and law and justice and stuff, and I really liked it. And out of the blue, I emailed them and I said, you know, I'd like to come work um, for you. And they, they said, you know, 
one, we don't get emails every day from college kids asking to work at NPR shows about constitutional law. So uh, I think that was exciting to them. And two, they had just set up a fellowship, um, which allowed them to hire like an, an intern equivalent person. And so it's just super lucky. They, they said, you know, let's talk on the phone. I talked to them and said, here's a job. And um, so I had to move down to UPenn. And um, a couple of things really came together all at the same time. Um, one, I started eating better and started getting healthy. Two, moving to UPenn, I actually moved into the girls' volleyball house, which was pretty nice. Three, uh, the job was great. It was a lot of fun. Um, four, the boss of the program was this woman named Kitty Colbert, who was a lawyer who argued uh, uh, a case named uh, Casey v. Planned Parenthood in front of the Supreme Court that basically reaffirmed Roe v. Wade. Like this lawyer helped protect women's right to choose. And she was like my boss. And um, yeah, it, it, it was this really, it was interesting because on one hand, from a personal kind of rebuilding my life perspective, it was perfect. From a social perspective, it was horrible. I wasn't, I didn't know people at UPenn. Like I didn't have a lot of friends, um, but kind of from rebuilding, it was really great. And I had this really great conversation with Kitty Colbert at the end where I told her, you know, I was thinking about going to law school and she described to me because I didn't know what else to do. And it was weird because I literally was like, I don't think I want to be a lawyer, but I'm thinking about going to law school, which I think a lot of Yaleys do, strangely. Yeah, that was my plan. That was my plan. (laughs) And she said, well, Michael, let me describe to you what a lawyer does. And she told me for about 10 minutes and she said, does that sound like fun? And I said, no, that sounds like a fate worse than death. Um, (laughs) I believe that's a Justin Conline. And she said, then why are you going to go to law school? And I was like, well, I guess that's that. Um, but one of the cool things, one of the kind of bragging points is that because I had done con law in high school, she was actually teaching a constitutional law class at UPenn, like a little seminar. And um, because I was a fellow at UPenn, I was awkwardly treated like a grad student. So mm. two cool things happened. One, I was, as a Yale dropout, I was a TA for a UPenn class, which I loved. And two, the governor of Pennsylvania was actually teaching a class at UPenn that year. And I um, audited it by emailing saying, oh, I know this is a selective class. Most kids don't get in, but I'm a fellow. So can I audit it? And like the professor was like, yeah, sure. If you're a fellow, you can do whatever you want. And I, was like, <laughs> <laughs> I had this like student ID that said fellow on it. It was, it was pretty good. <laughs> it was the keys to UPenn. The keys to UPenn. It, it literally got you in the door. So it was the keys to UPenn. So then it was time to come back to school. And, you know, the, the, the switch had flipped in my mind. And I was like, look, this isn't hard. Like, you're just embarrassing yourself. You're not getting good grades. Like, the amount of effort it takes to get good grades at Yale is basically zero. So just do it. And I was a, I was a poli-sci kid. So it was, like, rounded to zero. And so I did. I just got good grades. And I remember I, like, I, I still remember to this day I did my senior thesis in 18 hours and got an A-. minus. I did it the day before it was due. Actually, the day of it was due. And, um... That's where I met you. That's where yes. I really met you. Do we know each other beforehand, before you dropped out? We knew of each other, but mostly I had bad thoughts. You guys oh. were the loud room that like threw parties and you weren't really cultured as opposed I think to I, a core group. I think you I crashed, crashed your party. party. Yeah. yeah. Did you have a sushi party and I crashed your party and yeah. ate your sushi? Yeah. You know, it, it was... Um, 
I think I still had thoughts that I was a sophisticated person. And, and so, yeah, that's when I feel like I really met you. And, and, you know, the way I tell this story to other people is that I didn't really know anyone. Like I knew a couple people, but I didn't really know anyone. Cause now you were a class of 05. Now like, all 05. your friends had graduated. Everyone graduated. Um, they put me in a, in a senior single, which was great. And, um, you know, through you, I made friends with this whole group of people that I'd been living with for years, but never interacted with. And um, honestly, left school with a better friend group than I'd had from the, the first time I was there. So we were we were hanging out. I remember we were hanging out almost every day. Yeah. Like I was like playing World of Warcraft or that like online settlers game and you just come over and we'd listen to music. Yep. Uh, yep. And get into arguments because you would want to change it every 30 seconds. <laughs> like, and I just want to listen to a complete song. Which but I still don't understand. <laughs> you were kind of watching me start a start. I was starting my first startup, Kiko, with Emmett Shear, our other eventual co-founder. And you were kind of watching Emmett and I start this startup. And I remember you're, you were kind of just like observing it and may, mostly making fun of us and, and observing it. But like you didn't have any interest in startups at that time. Like it, there was 0% interest. So you were just watching, like, what were you thinking? You weren't thinking, this is what I want to do. You know, what's so funny is that like, it didn't even really, like, I can remember one or two conversations about Kiko. Like I, I saw you every day. I think we talked about your startup once or twice. It wasn't like I didn't have interest or I didn't, it was just wasn't a factor. Like in many ways, I learned far more about Kiko when you guys actually started doing YC and you were back in Cambridge than I ever knew during school. I didn't know you guys applied to YC. I didn't right. know what so, it was. I never knew what Paul Graham was. I didn't know any of these things. Yeah. So the, so what happened was, I mean, I, Emmett and I were working on the startup. Just to give everyone some context, it was a calendar startup where we were like Google Calendar, but Google Calendar hadn't come out yet. And so Emmett was my my high school friend who you know from when I was a kid and childhood friend, actually. Uh, and then we... He ended up going to Yale and we were working on this app together, kind of hacking it together. And then Michael was, you know, and among all of our other friends, they were just kind of watching us trying to start the startup back in 2004 and then 2005 when, when this wasn't a really popular thing to do. And then after, you know, so after we graduated, we both graduated in 2005, I'm like, okay, I'm going to work on this full time. Emmett and I get into the very first batch of Y Combinator, which is this new fund to start to help fund companies, which you are yep. now, you know, CEO of. Yep. You would never have guessed from 20 years, or 17 <laughs> years ago, or whatever it was, 15 years ago. So 15 years ago, we get into YC and I remember calling you. We would like talk on the phone, a very 2005 thing to do. You know, we'd like talk on the phone and you just would just talk about, I would talk about my experience of what I was doing and you would kind of talk about what you were doing. Yeah. And you had one or two jobs, right? You had two jobs. In, in, I did. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. 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 Well, I remember specifically you telling me that you were doing this program called Y Combinator and I asked you what it was and your description oh, yeah. was very funny. Um, I was, let me set it up. It was, um, so there's this guy, this older guy who had done startups and sold the startup to Yahoo. And every, was it Tuesday? Yeah, every Tuesday. Every Tuesday, he invites all of these younger guys, like recent college grads, to his house and he cooks dinner with him. And then like, they talk about startup stuff and then they go home and like, that was what you were doing. And I was just kind of like, 
is this guy like shady? And he's like, no, 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 <laughs> like completely legit, you know? And I was like, okay, all right, well, that sounds cool. And um, we were kind of on these parallel paths where you were working on Kiko. Originally, I was working on Wall Street as a technical recruiter, which was a horrible job. Um, literally, this company had built software that scraped email addresses from monster.com and then gave their recruiter, it's actually, it's funny, it's, I see the other side of it now, gave those, the recruiters, me, this interface to basically like scrape 50,000 emails from monster.com and spam them some like AT&T job in like New Jersey to see if they wanted to work there. <laughs> God, I don't know. Horrible. Um, How many people did you hire that way? I think I got two people hired. Um, and I would make like a very little bit of their salary, like $1 an hour or something as like a bonus or something. I don't know. Anyways, um, what I really wanted to do is work in politics. And so I eventually figured out how to get a job in a U.S. Senate campaign in Baltimore. So I moved down there. And I kind of feel like we were on this weirdly parallel track because like, both of those projects we were working on kind of ended at the same time. So, so you were working on this Senate campaign, and I feel like there's this whole life path that would have happened for you had that worked, right? Like the, the, you were, were you chief of staff or head fundraiser of the campaign? Yeah, I was the, 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 what the fuck do they even call it? Finance director. I was the head fundraiser. Yeah. 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 So you were 22 at the time, right? Head fundraiser, which already is kind Not of a red flag, flag. <laughs> right. for a u.s senate campaign and, yeah. and, and it wasn't like a, a, a maryland senate it was like the u.s senate <laughs> yeah. so so you had gotten this job in but if he had won you would have been gotten a job in this administration and then I, yeah. become gone into politics like career politics i would be living in dc yeah the whole thing and he lost by three percentage points so it was pretty close. And in the meantime, I had been starting the startup with Emmett. Lots of stories in there. We almost we tried to sell it to Yahoo. They like agreed to buy it. Then they ghosted us. And then eventually we end up selling it on eBay as like a last-ditch Hail Mary. Basically, we're winding down the company at, at the at the same time that you were kind of the campaign was like coming to the election. Right. Yeah. Yes. And so I remember. Well, we were, you know, we were still hanging out. We were talking a lot and we would hang out occasionally. Yeah, meet um, up in New York. Meet up in New York. Uh, well, we were living in Boston where Y Combinator was based at the time. And then Emmett and I emailed our entire friend group and we're like, okay, we're leaving. Our company failed and we're going to leave and start a new company in San Francisco. And, and let's be clear, selling your company for $250,000 a year out of college, I to your friends, I don't think felt like failure at all. That's true. Um, yeah. Like, we weren't like, we didn't understand the startup world. Like we didn't know that we didn't know anything. Right. So it's like, I kind of thought you guys were rich. <laughs> I learned later that wasn't true. But at the time, <laughs> so we seemed like we had succeeded. We were like, okay, we had the successful exit. We're going to start another company. And yeah. I'd actually told you, I remember very distinctly, I told you and my dad, the idea for our new company my dad was, I remember randomly, you were in DC for, you know, that's where the campaign kind of was. And I was visiting DC. I think I was visiting you maybe, but my dad was also there for work. Yes. So we had like a dinner where it was like yes. my dad, you and me. And I was, this was right when we were kind of selling Kiko. And I was saying, 
this is our next project. I, this is what I want to do. And it was called Justin TV. And I was pitching you like, I'm going to put a camera on my head and broadcast my life to the internet 24-7. What do you guys think? Not good. <laughs> yeah, then you were both. I feel like you looked at each other and just were like, what the fuck? There was kind of, this kind of look of my dad, I, this face that I'll never forget. That was just kind of like, uh, just this shock, bewildered disappointment. What, what were you thinking? Your dad's face is not very expressive. And so that's right. just like a, a good, <laughs> it shows his level of feeling. No, I, I just thought um, it's so funny because I tell this story so often to so many founders. I literally thought it was the dumbest startup, a startup idea I'd ever heard in my life. Like full stop. I mean, to my credit, you hadn't heard that many startup ideas yet. No, but it, it maybe still is the dumbest. <laughs> <laughs> And now I've heard many ideas. <laughs> I mean, just think about it. Like, like, Justin, the company sold for a billion dollars and the idea still doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, like, I think this is like almost the beauty and the just genius of being an early stage, a young early stage founder is you can actually convince yourself of anything, like of literally yes. anything. And you don't like, have the experience to tell yourself that is fucking stupid no you, yeah and the experience can like damn if you're doing something really different experience can kind of screw you and so i just remember thinking it was the dumbest idea ever and then not really i had no idea within six fuck six months within three yeah, within months, six months yeah. working at the company right <laughs> so it just didn't phase me it was just like oh a friend's doing this thing it's dumb okay like you know <laughs> You could say working at the campaign I worked at was dumb. Like we just lost. Right? It didn't phase me. But then you sent that email. Yeah. So uh, I emailed our whole friend group and was like, hey, come out. Or I didn't say come out. Actually, I was like, we're moving. Emmett and I are leaving and we're going to be in New York for a weekend. So let's hang out. And then we're going to leave the East Coast, hopefully forever, and go to California where we're going to try to start this new company. And, you know, this is the it's the little details because we've told this story before. But I remember this little detail where you were like, and I'm finally going to get some good wonton soup because the whole East Coast has horrible soup. And we were just like, the Chinese food in the East Coast is horrible. West Coast is so much better. I just want some wonton soup. And I, I still remember thinking like, I mean, I, I like wonton soup on the East Coast. Like, what is this magic wonton soup on the West Coast? Um, but that just like that little deal, all, that little detail always stuck with me because it's just like <laughs> the funniest thing to hate the East Coast for. <laughs> like it was like of all the things. It's like and the wonton soup was the straw that broke the camel's back. I got to get out of here. <laughs> I mean, so, I stand yeah. by that. <laughs> so this email comes and we had lost our campaign. I had stayed on staff to help, you know, thank our donors. And I have no, to this day, I have no idea why I interpreted this email as an invitation because it wasn't, it was, no, it wasn't, it was not an invitation. It was, but I don't think I invited myself. I think I asked, right? No, you asked, you asked, you were like, Hey, I want to come out. Uh, like I've never been to the West coast. Yeah. And so we were like, sure, come out. We ended up throwing out like a third of our stuff. Cause it was all packed in Emmett's Honda civic where the two of us were going to drive across the country and you know, we had no plan, as you discovered. You thought it was going to be a fun trip. It was not going to be a fun trip. <laughs> but but it wasn't. A, we were just like, we're going to drive until we get tired, and then we're going to stop at whatever Motel 6 or whatever there is, and then we're going to get up and drive. And eventually, we'll be in California. 
You know, it was funny because looking back, clearly I saw it as a vacation and you saw it as like the beginning of starting a company. And those were slightly not compatible visions. Yeah. You guys were very gracious and like allowed me to plan a, a more fun trip where we saw some folks and, you know, we still did it pretty fast though. I mean, it was, yeah, it was four, four days, days, I think. Yeah. Four yeah, days. Yeah. We stopped at some places though, you yeah. know, and then you got, we, we got there and the blue angels, I remember flying over San Francisco as fleet week in October. I don't think San Francisco has had a better day. No, it was an amazing day to sell San Francisco. It was very misleading actually because it was, it was beautiful over, and it was yeah. warm and there were fighter jets and like we were on treasure Island. So we saw the whole city and I, Best day, like, best day in San Francisco in my entire life. <laughs> and then we, we didn't stay in San Francisco. We drove 40 minutes south to Mountain View, California, which is a suburb, and stayed at my cousin's house on the floor on an air mattress uh, in this suburb while Emmett and I tried to figure out how to set up this company around streaming my life to the internet, which, you know, after our last, you know, after Kiko had kind of sold, Paul Graham had given us a check for 50 grand to like, go do it. He was like, yeah, let's go. Yep. Which, which was folded up in your wallet, I remember. And so I remember we're staying at your cousin's place and I'm kind of feeling a bit useless. I'm like, hey, like my friends are, this isn't really a vacation for them. Like they're really doing that. Like they're starting a company and I'm just like sitting here. And I just kind of felt like that was rude. And so I was just like, well, I should at least like help do something. Like, you know, like make some use of myself. And so I remember telling myself, like, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure they get an apartment because it's depressing me that they are going to have to live in this basement in Mountain View. <laughs> and I'm going to help them open a bank account because, you know, that was like, in my extremely had- limited set of skills, that was one of them. <laughs> God, what did we do? I mean, we drove around. Didn't we drive around San Francisco looking for apartments? Yeah, we drove around SF looking for apartments. We end up renting one at this place called Crystal Tower, which is kind of in North Beach, which eventually became this hub of YC companies that got kind of their start there, including you know companies like Dropbox and the early you know days of Reddit. Um, these these guys lived there, so you know very kind of eventual infamous place to live. Yeah, opened an account at Wells Fargo, which came back to bite us many years later. The the last weekend before I was supposed to go home was my birthday. And so we planned this trip to go wine tasting in Napa. And we invited Kevin and was Lisa Naito there? Maybe. So so we had some friends from college who were like out yeah. here by then living living there. And so we all went. I think we went up to Kevin's house for a barbecue, right? It was a it was someone that Kevin knew who he was yeah. sitting for. So it was like a barbecue and it was great. And I remember you gave me a birthday gift, um, which I should, I should have known something was up because like we don't really trade gifts. And I remember I had said to you at some point, I'll never buy myself an iPod, iPod. Yeah. Because like. That's how it, fucking old you are. It was an yeah. iPod. <laughs> it didn't even, did it have a screen? I don't even know if they had screens. It had a color screen. It had a color screen. Remember, okay. Yeah. And I remember being really happy and I remember just being like, well, that's awesome. And um I didn't think much of it. And then I guess the next day you drove me to the airport, right? That was the right. back you're, when people had, drove each other to the airport, which is there's awesome. There's no Uber, exactly. So I had to drive you to the airport to go. You were going back to Maryland to like resume working on the Senate campaign. That The election was like, I think, soon, but... No, no, it or, already happened. We already oh, lost. Yeah, right, so I was going to figure out what campaign I was going to jump on next. or I don't know. I didn't know what. 
And I was like, you got to join. And my pitch to you was you should join this company because honestly, having somebody who knew who was willing to like do paperwork and open bank accounts, that was like amazing, <laughs> mind blowing to me. I was like, we know how to program shit, but like my willingness to like go to the bank to cash this check is very low <laughs> to fund the company. And, you know, you had like fundraising experience. You were kind of, we were like, we could have, you know, what's better than starting a company with friends, first yeah. of all. Yeah. And then, you know, Michael has like business skills, this nebulous, you know, air quotes, business skills set, uh, yeah. a set of skills that I'm sure would be useful. Heavy air air quotes, because there were actually no skills, but, you know, potential, potential you, business skills. I think to be fair, you had business skills, like we had programming skills <laughs> at the time. Sure. Everyone was in a high potential, low skill set. Exactly. And so, yes. Yeah, so you asked me and I said, no. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, and at the time, I didn't realize it was kind of a brutal no. Like, because like asking someone to be your co-founder is like a big, it's like a thing. It's like a real thing. And it's like uh, I was asking you to get married. Yeah. And then you were just like, mm, mm, no. I don't even know if I had the mm part. I think I just said no. And then I remember you had a great line that I tell founders to use, which is just like basically just like sleep on it. Like you got to sleep on it. Like give, you got to give me that much to sleep on it. You know, I'm just like, yeah, you're right. Like I got, that's, that seems extremely fair. And then I get on a plane and I fly back to Baltimore. In the meantime, you guys find Kyle and uh, I get this email. God, was it maybe, was it two weeks later? It wasn't that much further. Yeah. So we had given it. So we were trying to recruit a hardware co-founder because we thought this was before the iPhone. We were trying to create this live stream from anywhere in the city. And so we needed like a hardware, basically that connected cell phone data modems to a computer that would take a webcam and like turn it into video and stream it over the internet. And we didn't, we didn't have any idea how to do that. And so we were trying to recruit from MIT uh, somebody who could do it. So we had emailed this email list of like the students at MIT, the, the EE electrical engineering students. And Kyle had responded, who became our fourth co-founder. And he, he was like, I could build this camera. And he responded with a very detailed, like 17 page plan uh, PDF with how much it would cost at, you know, a thousand units and like all of these different details and like a 3D CAD model. Yep. And we we're like, this guy definitely knows what he's talking about. We should hire, you know, we, we need to get him on the team. Honestly, and this probably has to do a lot with me not reading many books or participating in school. That was probably one of the most impressive documents I'd ever seen to that point in my life. I know, which is weird, but yeah, I, I agree. I, it was very impressive. It was, um, and the thing I love about what happened is I used that document to convince you to join the company because I was like, look, we have a plan that this other kid just wrote. <laughs> All I have to do is forward. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I remember I'm sitting in Baltimore. I have a girlfriend at the time there who, who I thought was really cool. I didn't know what I was going to do next. I get this email and I think to myself, okay, they've got a guy who can build the camera. They have 50K. You know, they have the apartment, the setup, and da 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 da. And I'm like, you know, when's the next time your best friend's going to ask you to start a company? And I remember thinking this, I remember thinking distinctly, like every other path I could walk down will be available. Every other path will be there a year from now, two years from now. This is the only path in my life that won't be. There was something about that that was just like, huh, it's different. 
And then I was just kind of like, you know, fuck it. And it's so weird because it wasn't a business decision. It wasn't like, and then I weighed the pros and the cons of live video streaming and, you know, the strategic direction. It was, do I want to work with my friends? And um, yeah, I remember the feeling when I knew it was the right move. And then I remember looking around and everything I looked at felt like it was no longer relevant in my life. Like my apartment, no longer relevant. Like the, the campaign office, like all the, I almost knew it was the right decision right away because everything in my life, I was just like, oh, I can just drop this. I can drop yeah. all this shit. And I forgot how, I mean, I was on a plane back to San Francisco pretty fast, right? Yeah, within two weeks. It was yeah. actually, I was surprised. I remember being surprised that you were willing to drop all that stuff. You like put your stuff in storage or sold it on Craigslist yeah. and like left your girlfriend very quickly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually want to touch on something that's that you said in there, which is like working with your friends, because I feel like that was tremendously good for us actually in ways, and then also very bad for us in ways. Yeah. And I am curious... I know how I think about it. how. How do you think about how that played out for, for the four of us? Oh, I thought it was great. I thought the good outweighed the bad. I think that we were all early stage founders who were very dysfunctional. And if you had put us with co-founders we weren't friends with, I think oh, yeah. it would have been way worse. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I always say is that friends who do business together, they kind of know what the thing they could say that would destroy the relationship is. And they don't say it. They'll get right up to the line, but they won't say it. And when you're not friends with someone, there's nothing that holds you back. And startups are so stressful. You can accidentally ruin your relationship with your co-founder, like not even intentionally. And so I think there were all these times where we all got on each other's nerves, but we never crossed that line that couldn't be uncrossed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing was that you guys, not as much me, you guys kind of led with this. There was a fearlessness in our company. Like for the longest time, I just kind of assumed all engineers were amazing and fearless because there was never a time at Justin TV where like we had to build something and we couldn't build it. I, I, that never happened ever. It was like, oh, it's broken. Okay, you're fixing it. Oh, okay, it's fixed now. Like there was never a point where someone raised their hand and said, I don't know how to do this. And it was clear in hindsight, nobody knew how to do anything, but everyone just knew that they'd figure it out. And I remember kind of trying to absorb that feeling myself. It was like, well, if these guys could do anything, then, well, I guess if we have to raise money or we have to do this or do this, like, well, shit, like, I don't have an excuse. And that was just a great feeling. That That is something, now that you say it, that was unique in a way, because now, you know, I've had experiences with other startups, advising other startups, whatever, and seeing teams of... 20, 30 engineers, and they're just like, it's going to take N weeks to build this thing. And at Justin TV, we had, you know, a bus number of one for every project that we were working on, which means like if one person got hit by bus, like no one would know how it was working or how to continue. Like we would create an entire live video system and one person, you know, Kyle would, <laughs> would build it or create an entire application infrastructure and Emmett would build it. And we just would just sit down and write code until it worked like straight, you know, like for a week or whatever, and then roll it out. And oftentimes it was horrible and buggy and crashed all the time, but it was like kind of, it worked and then it got better over time. Yeah. And it wasn't, and, and we had piled up so many of those wins so early that I think everyone's both skills and confidence increased. Yeah. And then, you know, as things got harder, like 
people could meet the challenge. It was it was crazy. I mean, that's we grew up at Justin TV like that. That in many ways, we all became like the the people we are today there. And how do you think that happened for us? Like, what how did, what did, what happened for you? Who's the person that you became because of the the anvil that is Justin TV? I think I fell out of love with government fully. As a good business person, government now is your enemy. No, no. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just not in love with it. Okay. <laughs> I, have a, I have a neutral relationship with government. It made me grow up. It made me think about what I wanted to do in my life. It made me be far more intentional about everything. It made me understand my weaknesses. It's so interesting how like it was in some ways like school, but because it had real consequences, it was a thousand X more effective than school. I just remember continually having this feeling that like there was advice out there that you should spend your 20s like discovering yourself. And I just remember feeling sorry for everyone who spent their 20s discovering themselves because like I spent my 20s becoming like 10x better than I was in college. And God forbid someone else spent their 20s farting around, going on vacation and shit. It just seemed like a waste of like a decade, uh, a really valuable decade. And yeah, by the end, you know, I think we all felt part of the startup world. We all felt, like I remember the moment where I was like, oh yeah, creating a company. Yeah, that's that's simple. And like, I would think yeah. back to college and being like, you can't create it. How do you even do that? Right? It's like, oh, well, we just call Carlos and we're good. Like, yeah, man, that happened in our 20s. For some reason, some people that never happens. And so what are the, what are the worst hive inducing moments that you remember from back then i remember you know a few yeah i mean um there are a number of moments where where justin tv almost died and and it was kind of on me there were there are other moments where it was on other people but there were a number of moments where it was on me um you know one was when we got our first bandwidth bill that was more money than what we had in the bank that was a fun moment that wasn't really your fault, though, that we had created that. I mean, that was an infrastructural problem and probably a planning problem on our parts and also a business model problem of like not being able to actually pay for anything because we had no revenue. You're right. In that case, it wasn't on me that it was I didn't invent the problem, but it was on me to fix it. <laughs> there was a moment where you and Emmett had to loan the company money because we ran out of money and we had to do a written like a literal like lined paper, pencil, written loan. Promissory paper. note. Yeah. There was the moment um, where we put money in auction rate securities and we almost didn't get it back. There was the moment that NBC almost shut us down because the Olympics were happening. And they were being streamed, restreamed by users on our site. And they called us and were like, we're going to sue you on Monday. Fuck you guys. Game over. They were actually very polite about it, but the oh. message was clear. Thank you, guys. Thank you for being not... <laughs> alive on Monday. There was the moment that we almost didn't raise our Series B and then no one wanted to give us money. And then we figured out some way for like our Series A investors to give us money plus Tim and all this stuff. Three weeks later, the economy melted down. That was very lucky. So 2008, summer 2008, by this time we had pivoted from a stream of my life, which was actually terrible and boring as anyone could probably predict it. <laughs> Uh, to a platform for anyone to create live video. And the platform was actually growing. Mostly copyrighted content. Mo mostly uh, DMCA content. So mm -hmm. the copyright holders were coming and they were kind of like policing the content. We had this tool for them to take down content. And 
we needed to raise a series B. We had raised a series A of $2 million. A funny story from that I always tell, which I remember is like, we closed that series A because we had all the options of theoretical investments offers written out on a whiteboard in our living room and then had invited these other investors who wanted to talk to us into to talk. And then they, we talked to them and then walked them past the whiteboard accidentally, actually on the way yeah. out. And that on the whiteboard was this verbal offer. So it wasn't even a real offer, but it was a verbal offer from an investor to invest $1 million at a $5 million valuation. And then they came back, these new investors came back and said, we'll give you $2 million at a $10 million valuation. And, and so we took it. That was like how we raised our Series A. It's almost like an episode of Silicon Valley or something like that. I mean, so much of our lives were like the right thing happened at the right time and we couldn't have predicted it. Like so yeah. much of this was not skill. Like sometimes I see young founders today who kind of think that these companies are all planned out and all kind of like, you know, almost like buildings where it's all drowned down on blueprints before the first thing happens. And it's just like, that's not. And then a year later, we're back at it. Okay. We spent that $2 million. <laughs> we have, I mean, we have traffic to show for it. You know, we're like, we're, we were heavily invested in the YouTube theory, which is just, if you grow something big enough and don't make any money, eventually somebody's going to buy it. For a lot. That was our entire strategy. If we had a book, it would have one page, it would have that sentence on it. That <laughs> yeah. So so we had no revenue model. The internet video advertising industry didn't even exist really yet. This is you know kind of 2008. And then you know, the only thing that really that existed was YouTube had been acquired. And so other people were kind of like, this model could work. They're, they were excited about it. Well, one second, but, I want to tell a little aside. I remember going in and talking to a VC. To this day, I have no idea why he accepted the meeting. In this meeting, I told him that video ads would come to the internet. There was video, and therefore there would be video ads. He looked at me and he said, people have been pitching us video ads for however many years. It's complete horseshit. All the estimates are wrong. And like, this is just garbage. And I remember thinking, I remember being conflicted. Because on one hand, when you're a young founder, you think VCs know everything. Like you think that they're really smart and stuff. But then I remember also thinking like, you mean there's going to be video and no ads? Like where else, where else <laughs> your video and no ads? If this was a more intellectual or like a harder conceptual question, then I might believe you. But like, this is kind of like video and then ad. Like it's just like yeah. always that way. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Like yeah. video. <laughs> we haven't invented a platform where people look at video and then there's no ads. No, no. And, and like not one-to-one -one video, but like any more than one-to-one -one video, there's always ads. And so I just remember being like, you know, I'm not that smart, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure this video. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we should email that guy because, you know, just for context, like, there's, in the Valley. There's, there's video, there's video ads now, you know, Did anyone who's been, happen? Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah, there's video ads. Oh. Twitch is worth like $15 billion or whatever. Yeah. There's video oh, ads they make now. Money on video. Oh, you're right. They do. Yeah. yeah. Shit. Well, we were clairvoyant on the video ad uh, thing. Well, well, there is a lesson in there. I think that people overlearn from their limited experience. You know, he had lived whatever, 15 years of getting pitched video ads on the internet. It turned out it took another probably seven years for them to like really materialize in force. Yep. So. Well, he could have made money, but he didn't. And so anyways, yeah, we, we figure out how to close this money um, right before the financial crash. The next time we almost died, I think, was like the real pivotal one. And, and that was when, this was 2010, right? This was August 2010. And we had 
maybe a half million dollars in the bank. We were spending 250K a month and we had pitched every investor. No one wanted to give us a dollar. And it, and we were very transparent with our company, thankfully. Um, and it was like, hey, look, like the writing's on the wall. Like that was that was the moment I don't really come alive until I'm facing extreme death. That's, you know, oh, the senior thesis is due the next day. Okay, today sounds like the day to get started working on it. And I remember feeling like this, you know, our rodeo is going to come to an end. We've been lucky. And this time, it's just not going to break our way. <laughs> and, and that was amazing because I think without knowing it, we'd built, in some ways, we built a really great culture without knowing it or without being super intentional about it. And we'd done some things that were organically right, like being really transparent with our numbers, with our employees. And we had a meeting and we invited most of the senior people in the company and all the founders. And we had all decided to save the company. Like we had a meeting and decided to save the company. And then we did it. I feel like both of those things are cool, right? Like a lot of companies just kind of hide and die quietly. And then second, like we said we were going to do it and then we did it. We went from two months to dead to making a million plus in profit for that year, five months later, and then taking the whole company to Hawaii, just because we've sat down and said, you know, we're not going to die. The thing that I, I think was very actionable that I tell founders today, but we just had this, we created a system for ourselves, which was every month we sat in a room and thought of all the ways we could make money and all the ways we could not spend money. <laughs> and like both, you know, everything from, monetizing more to putting more ads. I mean, the ways to make money were mostly like investing the site with ads, like every single place. Possible. I think we innovated on the ad front. We, well, we did. We innovated mid rolls. We created mid roll ads that just popped up in the middle of your streaming experience. We, the directory. We made the directory yeah. ad. We, we auto those autoplay videos that happened on CNN and everywhere else that you hate. Yeah, we created that, and then had ads that started before. Like it's like you didn't even request the original video, let alone the ad that came before it. So you know we created that, but we we would just remember we did payments. This well, we created, monetization. Yeah, we created a, a paywall, which two months after it launched was making like 100 to 200 grand. It was a third a of month. our revenue. Yeah. Yeah. But a paywall that would stochastically kind of create, show up at, at, and block various video and say, hey, you got to pay $10 a month to, to kind of subscribe to Pro Account on the site if you want to watch video. And so we, we created a lot of ways to make money and then we would systematically figure out how can we not spend money. So we would optimize our bandwidth. We did a lot of technically very innovative things. We would optimize bandwidth a lot, do a lot of things to reduce server server infrastructure and server cost. And that just systematically did it every month and every month we saw improvement. And then eventually we went from, you know, what we were saying, a couple months of burn till death all the way to like, we were making a million dollars a month in gross revenue it, within yeah six months or something like that. It's pretty amazing. In a weird way, I kind of feel like there was a boot on our throat the whole time that we had grown accustomed to. That was this like, we're running out of money. We got to raise money. We're running out of money. And there was this moment where I was like, oh, if we do nothing, we might not die. This is the first moment in the company where like, if we do nothing, yeah. we might not die. For the first time, I could actually think clearly about what our company was. Like, I feel like my strategic brain like turned on that day and was like, oh, well, if I'm not fearing where I'm going to get my next meal, maybe I can plan something more than like the next month or the next two months.
We did. Like that's when we started planning. Yeah. So that's when we first kind of came up with the idea of social cam and, and Twitch. And it came out of a me. So, you know, we had made all this, we started making money, but the problem was that site traffic also stopped growing. Yes. And so we could all see the writing on the wall, which is if it's not growing on the internet and the internet is growing, then you're relatively shrinking and you're going to die. Yeah. So kind of, we were like, not going to die from the revenue point of view, but from the traffic point of view, things started looking worse. And we said, we need to do something about this. And so we kind of met as founders, the four of us, Emmett, you, Kyle, and, and myself. And we're like, what ideas do we have to try to create more traffic or create something with more traffic? And what well, I want to set the setting here too, because you might think that we're like business people meeting in some like conference room. We were meeting in... What was it? It was like a closet. So, so, so the conference room at Justin TV, there was no conference rooms. The office that we had was down this alley that homeless people regularly took shits on the wall of. And the alley was, it was, um, you know, this office was a warehouse that was converted into yeah. a kind of live workspace. So there were no, there were no rooms in it. There was, the only room was a supply closet that was, you know, probably like yeah. six six feet by eight feet. That was the only and, room with the door. It was and the door was an accordion door that yeah. had a one foot gap at the bottom of it. So anybody who was in the kitchen or living room could hear what was going on in the closet that was right next to it. And so we would have these kind of semi private conversations that our entire company could hear. <laughs> and that's that's when we started figuring out how to make a real company. And you know, it's it's interesting because. You know, I don't know where you want to go from here. I feel like in the spirit, almost in the spirit of Shogun, he didn't tell the whole story. He just told the story up to the point where it was inevitable that he would become Shogun. Yeah. I want to, there's a, f a few things I want to touch on, but we don't have to go. I mean, the rest is history kind of, we can, we can, uh, we can just let the reader just, you know, or listener understand what happened. But, um, you know, we couldn't decide as the four founders, we basically could not decide what to do. Emmett really liked video games. He really, he thought what, be, you know, the thing that could become Twitch, which we didn't know at the time, he was really pulling for that. And then your idea, really, you were championing mobile. Well, I think you correctly saw, hey, mobile is going to be big yeah. as a means of consuming content and let, let's focus on mobile. And so there were these two ideas. Mobile actually sounded really good from from more of like a business perspective. All the VCs actually, loved mobile. The vo these VCs loved mobile. It was very fundable. So you're, you're pitching mobile and then Emmett was like the only con he was much more taking the user perspective where he's like, I hate all the content on our site. The only content I like is the Starcraft content because Starcraft 2 had just come out. Yeah. I just want to focus on the Starcraft content. And so we were deadlocked basically because I was kind of like, ah, I like Emmett, but I like what Michael's saying. And Kyle was like, no, I hate the video game idea. Let's just do this social cam idea, the, the mobile video idea. And so we couldn't decide. It wasn't dysfunctional deadlock. No, no, no. It was yeah. just like, we just like couldn't come to consensus. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we would argue for like, we argued for at least a day or like, you know, t tens of hours on it. But I felt different. It wasn't like the arguments we would have when we were younger that were just like stupid and useless. Like I, it was, I think it was like some of the most strategic conversations we've ever had. Like I, yeah. I think we finally had enough context and knew enough to have a real conversation about what kind of business to build. <laughs> right. So the answer, which maybe was correct, was that we didn't know a priori what was going to work. And so we decided to test. And the way that we thought we would test is by doing both, 
and then setting some goals and for six months and seeing what would happen uh, in that six months. And if, you know, and then if we succeeded at both projects, you know, both mobile video and, and then uh, Twitch, then, you know, that was a champagne problem. Everything was great. And eventually what happened was, you know, Twitch was kind of succeeding and then social cam, our internal project was really not hitting our goals, yeah. but you loved it. And so you decided, Hey, let's like spin it out and take it, take it for its own, you know, kind of build it as its own startup. Yeah. There was, there was a two week period of time where I think I realized a couple of things very quickly. The first was that Emmett loved the video game problem way more than I did. And I remember I tried going to a video game conference and it was just like, this isn't for me. I think I finally woke up and realized half realized I didn't fully realize I half realized I shouldn't be the CEO of a company where I don't like the product. Now, then I went and did social cam where I also wasn't a user of the product, but like, whatever, I, I half realized it. And then, and the second thing I realized was that, you know, when I joined Justin TV, I was not a tech person. Like I was okay with computers and stuff. Like I could fix your computer if it had a problem, but like I wasn't a software engineer I know anything, and I wasn't very confident about my abilities in building product or talking software and da 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 da. And you guys taught me everything. I literally learned everything during that time. I think I realized for the first time, like, oh, I could lead a team building a software product. And that was, you know, five years after we started. It was like, oh, I think I can actually do this now. And so I thought to myself, like, well, you know, instead of killing Social Cam, let's spin it out, which is an extremely naive thought, having never spun anything out before. <laughs> and that started a six-month, half-a-million-dollar, just absolute boondoggle of a fucking process. I'm curious, like, what did you resolve to do differently? Because you now you had this chance. You had done one startup, and you had kind of this chance to be the CEO. Like, you were the CEO of Justin TV, but it was, like, kind of not really, right? Like, we all four, all four of us, made decisions together and in a very dysfunctional way. So this time it was like, you were clearly the CEO. We drafted, you drafted really two engineers who were working, you know, from Justin TV, who were going to become the new co-founders, but you were kind of like the leader. Yeah. So what were you going to, what did you resolve to do differently that time? You know, I learned, I learned so many of the right lessons, but I screwed up on the the, the most basic one. I knew we were going to have a more functional um, way of making decisions so that we were going to split up roles and responsibilities. And I knew that we were going to be metrics driven. We were going to measure what users did. And I knew that we were going to talk to our users and do user interviews and, and, and do that. And, you know, during the time of Justin TV, there was this whole practice of how to build a product that was kind of invented during that time. And, and I was, and, and we didn't really do that at Justin TV. Um, but I think that both, both, both Twitch and Social Cam, when they were kind of apart, both adopted a lot of those methodologies. And um, I also learned how to do growth and how to, you know, make a product viral. And and I learned all those things. But you know, I messed up the most basic lesson, which is like, I was neither solving a personal problem, nor did I endeavor to pick a set of users and explicitly try to solve their problem. I was trying to growth hack a company into success. It was like I went from being not metrics driven to being too metrics driven. It was a shame because in hindsight, that was the right moment. 
And we had a thesis, which was that we can make it mainstream for people to create video. At that time, it was intimidating to create video, even though everyone had video cameras on their phones. And our thesis was that if we make pretty videos easier to take, a la Instagram, more people would take videos. And we were wrong. And, and it was funny because we understood the problem. Video was intimidating. But our solution was not only wrong, we never questioned it. We ne- like Even when confronted with tons of evidence that we were wrong, we never questioned it once. And at the same exact time, effectively, what's their face? Snapchat. Snapchat basically solved the problem. They solved the problem. With a, a different premise, which is lightweight disappearing instead of highly produced. It's like a limited set of people, almost more of a communication tool. There's two ways you can attack this problem. Make it easier to make pretty videos or make it impossible to make pretty videos. Snapchat made it impossible to make pretty videos. And then just in case you were still intimidated, the videos also disappeared. (laughs) And so it was just like, you could, like it was impossible to feel bad about a video on Snapchat. (laughs) Every video you got looked like crap. Every video you made looked like crap and they all went away. And it's, it's so creative. And here we are trying to like, rinse and repeat video editing stuff and video effects stuff that had been around for a while and hadn't worked. And we never sat down and actually, and to be honest, I think the reason why was because it wasn't our problem. We didn't right. care. Like we weren't active video creators. And so we couldn't internalize it at all. And so damn, I mean, right place, right team, right everything didn't matter. That's interesting. I mean, that's a really good core observation, which is you have to build for somebody. Yeah. If you're not building for somebody, then you're you're lost. But the funny thing is that people will take the wrong lesson because you end up selling the company for sixty million dollars, anyways. Uh, well, I'm not going to lose. I'm just not going to win. <laughs> like, that's not going to super win. You got to figure shit out. That was and, that was that was pure luck. That was pure pure luck. It's another string of pure luck. Yeah, didn't happen. So okay, I'll just a few more questions I have, and then we can wrap up. But that you know the story, the end of the story is. Michael went off, he sold the company. That was the first time we ever really made money. And then Emmett kind of shepherded and championed Twitch. And eventually that you know became that $970 million uh, exit from, from, from Amazon. And eventually we both, you and I joined YC and we're partners there. And now you are actually running YC, the uh, CEO of Y Combinator and the uh, basically running the accelerator, which is what YC is broadly known for. Yeah. And I've always said, when people ask me about you, I'm like, YC is the perfect job for you. Yeah. And I always explain it as like, Michael loves teaching. I think it's something maybe you inherited from your grandfather, you know, who's professor, Mm -hmm. but you love teaching and helping other people. And it's interesting. I always give this example, which is like, you know, when we were both partners, I said like, well, if all the companies failed the day after demo day, you know, all the YC companies in a batch failed the day after demo day. Michael wouldn't say, oh, I wasted that time. I would say, oh my God, I wasted that time. I want that time back. But you would just say like, you know, you were helpful and and I don't think you'd feel like you wasted that time. And so it was very, you know, it's always seemed like a very natural job for you. You know, you've been so helpful in Silicon Valley. I feel like in another 20, 10, 20 years, you will be like the godfather here, right? Like you will have helped every single company that exists in Silicon Valley. Like Airbnb, for example, would not exist without Michael. The Airbnb guy's, you know, I met Michael through one of our employees at Justin TV back in like 2007 or 2008 at South by Southwest. 
And then eventually you kind of became an advisor to them. And I remember very distinctly, there was one turning inflection point for them where they were so discouraged and they were going to give up. And they happened to be at our office. They would come like every two weeks or three weeks yeah. and we would give, you would give them product advice while like Emmett and myself and Kyle would just kind of like watch and be like bewildered by what was <laughs> going on because their product was so bad. And you, I remember this one night, actually, I remember two times. One was like, they were going through their payments checkout workflow and it was with like Amazon pay at the time. There's no Stripe or whatever. And you had to put in like 20 forms or something, including like a driver's license or like passport. In you had order to put to in like, an EIN number. You had to register a company with the government and then put in right, EIN number. In order to rent an apartment. This was like the early version of Airbnb. And, but then th that was one time and we were just like, you were like, nobody is ever going to do that. <laughs> like Zero people will ever do this. Well, you know what's so funny is that broke their heart because Nate was there and he had spent like weeks getting that set up. The forms were longer than a screen long and there were four of them. And yeah. by the fourth one, I was like, sorry, guys, like you just, not, all your users just died. You know, what's interesting is like your product insights were so good for other people's products. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just when it came to our own products, there was kind of like this missing link where you like, it's like an artist not being able to see their own work. I never used our product. I never, yeah. I never, I used Airbnb very early um, and loved, yeah. I loved it. I never, and I'd used couch surfing, but I had never used our product. Yeah, no, like. Pretty big hint that I was doing something <laughs> wrong, you know? <laughs> so so the second inflection point, which I think was was hilarious, a hilarious accident of fate, right? Which is that these guys had come over for another round of ass kicking from you <laughs> and they were really discouraged. They were gonna give up and you know, it wasn't working. This was like 2008 or something like that. It wasn't working. And we had just signed this major advertising deal with Microsoft at the time. It was six figures. They were going to give us $150,000, which is like more revenue than we, that was like 50% of the revenue we made that year. No, it was, I remember it was like $275,000 and 150,000 was, was this, was this uh, Microsoft deal. And so we were really happy and we decided to celebrate by doing a dinner out at the restaurant where my now wife, Christine worked. She was like a hostess at oh, the restaurant. Yes. And so it, details. I didn't remember these details. Yeah. Yeah. So we went to this restaurant with, and we were like, Hey, just come with us, you know, like we'll pay for it. It's cool. We'll just come. And so the founders and then the Airbnb founders came to this restaurant and we had dinner and they were just like, we're going to give up. It's not working. We don't know what to do. And Emmett was the one who's like, you should apply to Y Combinator. And then they were like, Oh, Y Combinator is only for companies that haven't launched yet. And we've launched and it doesn't work. And Emmett was like, no, it's just going to be good for you. And it's something to do, basically. And so then they... What are your alternatives? Yeah. <laughs> from from their... I think one of us maybe had like a palm or something like that. You or did. Like maybe, you had a trio. Yeah. I think you had a palm trio. And so I looked up like the Y Combinator website. You know, it's still Paul, but like we were just looking up the website. And then the application deadline had passed. And so I emailed Paul and said, hey, like, can you... We have this company that, you know, Michael's been mentoring. Like, can you take a look at them? They're really good. Uh, these guys are hustlers. And then he, he sent me an email back while we were at dinner that said, okay, if they apply tonight. Yeah. And so we were like, you should, yeah, you guys could apply. And through the course of that dinner, they not only thought about applying to Y Combinator, but then they got permission or a, a, the ability to. So they left dinner. Like we yeah. were having dinner and they just went home and left and to go do their application. 
And that that's, you know, but so to get back to my original point, like that really changed the course of history. And I feel like you've done that for so many companies. Like, what is it about being like this helpful advisor and mentor to startups that really like resonates with who you are? So first, I don't know. I think my first hint that I liked doing this was when I made that plan back in college of retiring and teaching. And maybe like everyone should sit down and ask themselves what would they want to do when they retire and then just do that now. Because like, why why, why are you waiting for it? I wait, you know? So I don't know why. I don't know what part of my makeup likes this, but it was clear pretty early that I realized it. And to be honest, joining Y Combinator reconfirmed it. And and I remember you recommended me to be a part-time partner at YC when I was working at Autodesk who had bought Social Cam and I was just, I was bored. And um, I remember starting to work with companies then and remembering the good old days with Airbnb and just thinking like, this is fun. I'm just going to spend more time doing this. You know, I, I kind of got addicted. I, I don't know. I think, you know, part of me loves the idea of giving back. Like part of me thinks that like this whole journey from like the road trip to Twitch selling, there was so much luck that the whole thing changed my life, my family's life forever. I couldn't have counted on it. And like this world kind of gave that to me. And maybe I owe a debt to this world. And like maybe the way I pay it back is to give that opportunity to other people. But you know, I honestly think that's how I rationalize it afterwards. Um, I think that, um, I don't know, it's just something I really like, I really like doing. It's weird because thinking back, YC, I, I lose count. I think this is like my 13th or 14th batch, God knows. And every batch, I think like, oh, this will be the one where it's just going to be like rinse and repeat. I don't like it. The companies are going to suck. I'm not going to enjoy it. And then it never is. Uh, it never is. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's been an incredible journey that we would never have guessed. Uh, so, okay, my, my one last question. This is the new podcast. I need to do something to boost, uh, get some views. So um, what is the secret to getting into YC? Like, how do people get into YC? Okay. What can I say that hasn't been said before? A couple things. Your startup has to happen with or without YC. That's the first thing. If you are using YC to figure out whether or not you should do this startup, more often than not, we can tell, and that's a bad thing. You should be working with someone who, or with a team, who even if you failed, you're going to have said it was worth it. It was it was really fun. You should be working on a problem that you care about somehow, or at least someone on your team cares about. Whether it's a personal problem, a problem for a friend or a relative or something you encounter at work, someone on your team should give a shit about the problem. You should have the ability to build the solution. Talk's cheap. Decks are cheap. Pitching is cheap. And you should ignore, to a large degree, the people around you. You should not be building something that everyone around you thinks is a great idea. Yes. You should should feel very comfortable ignoring um, everyone around you because you're aiming for a point 10 years from now. And then lastly, all things being equal, this world is a world that primarily can help software companies. There are a lot of people that talk about rockets and cars and spaceships and yada, yada, yada. But um, don't be fooled. This world, the startup world is set up to help software companies. 
And if you're doing a non-software company, the path is going to be 10 times harder. Don't believe anyone who tells you that like the startup world funds anything. Of course, there are exceptions, but as a rule, it tends to fund software more than anything else. That's probably it. Oh, last one, really simple. We asked you a question, what does your startup do? It's the first question on the application. It's really helpful if you answer that question without jargon, clearly, you know, in a fairly concise manner, in a manner that if you stop someone on the street and, and, and they asked, oh, what do you do? And you said these two or three sentences, they'd be like, oh, okay, I understand. It's really, really easy to think that like the people who are grading you are smarter than you are and you need to impress them. <laughs> They're dumber than you. Especially about your business. They're dumber. Yep. And you don't need to impress them with fancy words. Like that, that is that's not helpful. So, so that's that's about it. I have to be honest, you do those things, 95% of the time you get a YC interview. And you get a YC interview, you got a 25% chance of getting in YC. Pretty simple. It's like a simple set of rules to follow. There's no innovation is required to get a YC interview. <laughs> like, no, you don't have to think outside of the box. You don't have to do anything that other people haven't done. You don't have to, don't, like, don't use your innovation juice on your YC application. Like, use it on your product. Just do those simple things and, and you'll get a chance to talk to us. Awesome. That's all I got. Thanks, brother. All right, that was my conversation with Michael Seibel. As always, if you like this episode, make sure to drop us a rating, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and check out all Quest-related content at bio.thequest.media. Hope you have an amazing week. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you soon.